You know, as you read, <clears throat> as you read books um, or watch movies or um, hear a story, there are many times a common arc to them, a common storyline where you start off in the story where it kind of gives you your bearings, a little bit of background to the story. And then you have this problem that shows up. And then you have a climax to the story. And then you have things being tied up in the end with a conclusion. Now, in the midst of watching a movie maybe or, or reading a story about, about warfare especially, you'll have this scene or you'll read about this hero that shows up. And the way it's written, you just, you just know that this person is or they lead you up so that you know the person is the hero of this story. And when they show up on the scenes on that battlefield, you, you get this excitement. Yes, the hero has come. And so you're, you're overjoyed because of this. Or the people, when they see that hero show up, they're, yes, because he's the answer to our needs. Um, this doesn't just happen in make-believe stories. This happens in, in real life as well, where you could see, for example, in the ancient world with the Romans, and they would go out to battle against their enemies, and when they would defeat their enemies on the battlefield, they'd come back and, and walk through a city with all the things that they have won and the soldiers, and they would have this triumphal entry in a city. That's why we see arches in Europe in different places. They marched through the arches, and the city would rejoice. Their team has won, or their king has won. But we can see this even in small scale in our own lives of the excitement people can have for others. I mean, very small scale, but not insignificant. I can think through in my own life as a, as a dad where, especially when my kids were younger, I would drive up into the driveway and I'd see my children looking. I don't know what they were saying, you know, but they're, Dad! It's dad. And then I come into the door. Daddy. And give me this big hug. I don't know what storyline was happening in the midst of the day. But I am here, children. Uh, your father has come home. And they're excited about this. We get excited about certain people, about certain circumstances. What we dream is going to happen. What we dream is going to take place. And a certain person is going to accomplish those dreams. That, that brings us into and ushers us into Mark chapter 11. I mean, here we have Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Popular passage to be preached from on Palm Sunday because it's the first Palm Sunday. But Jesus is entering into the city. He's at the gates and at the gates of the city, many people waving the palm branches, declaring Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah means the one that God has promised to come to be the rescuer and ruler to bring a kingdom of peace forever. Jesus has been performing miracles for years. The people are wanting, uh, the people are excited about him entering into the city. And as I said earlier on, they're, they're wanting rescue from Roman oppression. And so they're excited. Jesus is entering into Zion. Jesus is entering into the city of David. They're waiting the arrival of the kingdom. And Jesus allows this excitement to take place. He's admitting he's the Messiah. He has a mission to accomplish. But clearly, what he knows he's saving people from is different than what they expect him to be saving them from. And so, 
almost immediately, there's confusion. I mean, if you read Mark from a Jewish perspective in the first century, or even today, here Jesus comes in, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Mark records Jesus goes to the temple, looks around, and leaves. Wait, wait, where's he going? I thought we came, I thought, where's the kingdom? Why did he leave the city? And not only did confusion arise amongst the people, but not long after, there's increased anger and angst at Jesus because of certain things that he was doing, certain things that he was declaring. Now today, this morning, I'm not actually going to be preaching from the triumphal entry perspective. I want to actually focus on what follows the entrance into the city of Jerusalem because I think what follows highlights to us why Jesus came. What was the purpose for Jesus coming to this earth? And we see this um, in the following verses. And I'm going to put it this way. The Messiah came, Jesus came as rescuer and ruler to free us, to free people, to worship God living in a relationship of dependence on the Lord. To free us to worship God living in dependence on the Lord. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles already, go to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to be reading section by section this morning. And I'm going to start with verses 12 and 14. But before I read 12 and 14, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. And thank you for your grace that you have poured down on us. To be able to be with other believers and to be able to worship you in singing, in giving, in prayer. Thank you for the privilege. And Father, we pray that this morning as we spend time in your word that you would illumine our eyes. That you would cause us to submit to your word and to find freedom and life and joy in your words. And again, it's because of Christ we pray and know you here. Amen. So verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find any on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, again, the goal for me today is to show you from this text that Jesus is the Messiah that came to set us free to worship God and live in dependence on him. And that's seemingly not what the religious establishment thought and maybe even many people in Israel at the time of Jesus. It seems as though many people practically thought that as long as they were doing certain religious rites, then they were fine with God. And yet, that can't be further from the truth. God didn't give us rules so that we could ignore him. God didn't give us certain things so that we wouldn't grow in a relationship with him. But this is how the people were living. God made us to find greatest satisfaction and delight in him. Yet in our sin, we value so many other things. By the way, worship of God means to 
know his worthiness and to confess it with your entire being. To know his worth and to confess it is worship, worship. But we're bound in our sins. As sinners, we don't value God. We value all these other things. Maybe even gifts of God, but we value them more than God or at the level of God. And the Bible tells us we're bound in our sins. We're bound in this. Jesus has been teaching. He's the only one who can take off the chains. Not only take off the chains, he's the only one that can make dead people live and give us that freedom. As triumphal king, he enters into Jerusalem. And these people in Jerusalem don't think they're bound in sin. But Jesus goes into the temple to show them, you're sinners too. And you need to be set free to worship God. This ritualism won't save. But before we get into this temple scenario, we have this fig tree incident. And why it's even brought up can be confusing at first, but it helps to serve as an illustration. And an illustration to show us our need to worship God. So Mark tells us that Jesus enters Jerusalem, then he leaves Jerusalem, and then on the following day, he's headed back towards Jerusalem. And Jesus is hungry. And he sees a fig tree. And then he curses the fig tree. Why? Let me give you a little bit of an illustration to start off. When I think of the fig tree, I think of common advertising slogans that we hear in our day. Um, or maybe in the past couple of decades. I think about uh, Coke. It, at least used to be. I don't know if it still is. But it used to be, it's the real thing. Oh. Oh, I want the real thing. Everything else must be fake if that's the real. Or it's the only real soda, so I've got to have that Coke. Or you think of BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Until we make a new model, then the other models are not ultimate anymore. It's this model that's the ultimate driving machine, and we have others that are penultimate, but whatever. It's the ultimate driving machine. Or we have um, Wheaties. When I was a kid, I would see commercials, and Michael Jordan would be eating Wheaties, and it said it's the breakfast of champions, and yet I never turned into Michael Jordan. You know, we have a lot of advertising, uh, most, if not all of our advertising today that we see, it's always communicating, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. And I kind of just wish there would be honest advertising saying, we're okay. You know, like we're not the greatest, but we're not the worst. We're going to do a good job. Wonderful. I'll take you. Um, But we have all this advertising of best, 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 and we kind of tend to believe it. You said you're the best. They have really good advertising, nice colors and everything. They must be the best because they said they're the best. What does that have to do with fig tree? (laughs) The fig tree is false advertising. When we read of of this scenario, we, we hear Jesus is hungry. And so as any hungry person would do, they want food. To fulfill their satisfaction. So Jesus looks, he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. Now a fig tree would usually have some fruit about the same time or a little after leaves show on a tree. And while fig trees usually don't produce ripe fruit until the month of June, it would not be unheard of for there to be green bitter figs on a tree at this point in time. So you have this tree with these leaves and it's saying, look at me, I got fruit. 
and Jesus shows up and there's no fruit. So there's no satisfaction to be found in this tree. And then Jesus curses the fig tree in the hearing of his disciples. There's false advertising going on. How does that play in with Jesus coming to set us free to worship God through a relationship of dependence on the Lord? Well, we have to go into the temple incident to see how the fig tree applies. So let's read verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus walks back into the city of Jerusalem and he returns to the temple and what he sees is appalling. He sees greed. He sees sinful ease and hypocrisy. All the buying and selling that was taking place in what was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles uh, came about in the temple because of a passage like Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, we read about foreigners coming to worship God. And so the the Jewish people were taught by God all the way back from Abraham. We know this. Through the seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That not only Jews could worship God. There could be people from other nations. And so Isaiah 56 brings this out. And so then people actually incorporated within the temple this court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could worship God. And so in Isaiah 56, we read, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Foreigners could come and worship. Foreigners could come to the mount and praise God. And the temple was on the mount. But at the time of Jesus, the purpose of the Gentile court was ignored. People were buying and selling in the place. And instead of people having to bring their animals, instead of people having to bring their animals from far distances, the court and the temple simply said, buy your animals here. And that might sound like a favor, but it wasn't a favor. Um, Many of the people who sold in the temple probably were from the high priestly line. And if they weren't in that family, uh, then you had to pay a great amount of money to be able to sell in the temple. In addition, in the temple, in order to purchase the animals, you had to do a currency exchange. Um, There was temple money that just existed for the temple. And you had to do currency exchange in order to get the temple money to be able to buy the animals. And they say that probably the, the rate of increase just for the currency exchange was 10 to 12%. Now, to add to this, Mark brings up in here the, the aspect of those who sold the doves or the pigeons. The, the, the doves, that was a sacrifice for the poor people. And I think when Mark highlights that, he's saying that they're taking advantage of those who are poverty-stricken. In addition to that, he's, he's telling us that people were traveling through this area 
I mean, from a commerce sake, the, the shortest distance from point A to point B is a straight line. And for them, the straight line would be right through the court of the Gentiles. So here we have the poor being taken advantage of, and you have people traveling back and forth through the court of the Gentiles. Can a Gentile really worship God in this area? No, it's too noisy. It's too crazy in there. And they're supposed to worship God with joy, but with all the taxes and the prices, there's no way that they're going to have joy in worshiping God in this place. That's, by the way, the point uh, part of the point that Mark is making here. I remember growing up and, and I had friends that told me that it was always a sin to sell something in church because of a passage like this. And it, when I was younger, I, I thought that was a good argument. But when you study the passage, you begin to see that God, Jesus, is not focused on selling. He's focused on the sins of the people in oppressing individuals and keeping them from worshiping God. That's why we have this emphasis on those who bought and sold or the money changers or those who sold doves, the anyones who carried the goods through the temple. All of these people are sinners and they need to know they need a savior. And so that's why Jesus goes on into verse 17 and says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, this sentence carries with it quotations from two different parts of the Old Testament. And the first part is from Isaiah 56, which I've already read. All the nations are to come and worship God. And what we find here, even in this text, is that prayer is associated and linked with worship. It seems to be a distinguishing characteristic of worship is prayer. That wasn't taking place in the Gentile court. You, you couldn't um, with focus because of all the commerce. God promises there would be joyful prayer, but there isn't. Now, what we see here in this text is that the religious leaders don't really care. They, they're not even thinking about how can we help the people to pray? How can we encourage the people to worship God? Instead, they've made it much harder for them to worship God. They've, they've almost communicated, because the temple is supposed to communicate the presence of God. What they've communicated is that God's hard to get to. God doesn't care. God's aloof. They're not offered worship. So when we, look at this, when we look at this temple incident, we see here that, that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. That that does refer to, or the house of prayer, is a place encouraging the genuine worship of God. Jesus is angered that they're not worshiping God. They want to elevate themselves. They want to pad their own pockets. And... and you know, as I was thinking through this this past week, this text and the aspect of prayer and the freedom to worship God, uh, there's a powerful assumption that Jesus makes about prayer that I don't think we assume. But it is that prayer and worship go hand in hand. And that you are not worshiping God if you're not prayerful as a person. Prayer is related to worship. I even think about that even within our local church context. We can be moving from Sunday school to the main worship gathering to getting together with people at midweek fellowships and doing all these different kinds of things. Are we a prayerful people? 
I mean, the reason why we even, as, as elders, want to have prayer time on Sunday nights and why we encourage prayer time at midweek fellowships is because God calls us to be a prayerful people where we worship God and recognize our utter need for him, not just individually, but corporately. And the place, the gathering of worship should be a place where we, and a people where we pray together because we see the worth and value in our need for God. Now, as a result of this hypocrisy, I mean, Jesus is confronting them and saying, you don't worship God. Then he goes on and he quotes from Jeremiah 7.11, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, the way that Jesus taught this is similar to the way that Jeremiah taught this. Jeremiah was at the gates of the temple. Jesus is, um, is similar to the way in which Jeremiah preached, uh, But Jesus initially stood at the entrance of the temple, but he came back and proclaimed that the people in Jesus' day are no different than the people in Jeremiah's day. And the passage is convicting and sobering. Jesus accuses the people of several sins when he makes this statement. But there, there are two bigger sins. When you get the context of Jeremiah, there's two bigger sins that Jeremiah is emphasizing. And I think Jesus is emphasizing as well. But the first sin is this, ritualism. They're trusting in the temple of God for their well-being instead of God for their well-being. The people ran to the temple as an excuse that they could hold on to to guarantee that they're good with God. And that seems to be a similar mindset with the Pharisees that Jesus talked to. We're fine. We're doing the religious things. We're observing all of this. This also seems to be something that goes on in our day as well. I go to church I even every once in a while take some notes in the sermon. I talked nice to that person. But in in essence, many people treat God like a lucky rabbit's foot. I'll go to him. Oh, he's going to give me this. I did this for you, God. That's not going to hold up in the judgment. I did this, God. I did that. Even Jesus says, you could say you did many wonderful works in his name. And you may still not be a believer in Christ. You have this ritualism. Trusting in even God's gifts, but trusting in them and not in God. But the second sin that's addressed in the Jeremiah passage that I think Jesus alludes to is also this sin of injustice. Now, when we think of injustice, we think of it from a governmental perspective. Something's unjust. But if you read Proverbs, you find that any sin is injustice. Any sin. Because all sins don't just affect you. It it relates to your relationship with God, and it has ripple effects out to everybody else. We were created as communal beings. So all sin is injustice. All true injustice is sin. And so what we have in Jeremiah's day was theft, murder, adultery, false oaths, the worshiping of false God, oppression of people who need most help, the fatherless, the widows, the strangers. And guess what kind of people we find in Jesus' day? The same. They look religious, but they act in all of these ways. And even within the temple, charge high taxes for the people who are poor. And they want to bring these sacrifices. They don't give the Gentiles their right to worship. And of course, within a week, they murder Jesus. I think about this den of thieves illustration in Jeremiah. I think about our day as well. 
Do we truly care about those who are in need? Do we truly care um, to, to show justice in this world? God's justice. Do we care about the hearts of people? Or in the churches in America, are we harboring sins? Because here's the thing. What happened was these people are living that way. These people are doing these things. Then they come into the temple. Look at me. I don't look like a thief. Do I? I look like a religious person. And people do that as well in our day. We live in our sexual promiscuity. We live in our gluttony of all different types of sins. And then we come in to the church and Jesus says, you're a den of thieves. That's all you are in this place. And you cannot cover that up from God. Imagine how angered the religious leaders were when they heard that. They were angry. They were already angry with Jesus. That just lit the fire more. And they wanted him dead. I wonder how people would respond in our culture if Jesus showed up and spoke. Who are we Are we clinging to our ritualism? Are we clinging to our injustices? See, the religious leaders were angered because Jesus confronted what they really loved, what they really worshipped. And what they really loved and worshipped was their power and their money. And Jesus showed, you can't, you can't have that for salvation. It will never rescue you. He confronts them in their rage But verse 18 goes on. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus is the purifier of the temple. They're astonished with what Jesus is saying. Many of the people are astonished with what he's saying. And by the way, the astonishment, that word shows up in different places in the gospel, in the gospels, in writing about how people responded to Jesus. Many times people were astonished at his teaching and also at his miracles. But by the way, just because people were astonished doesn't mean they actually trusted and followed Jesus. People could be amazed with what Jesus did and not truly be amazed with Jesus. There's essentially, when we read in the Gospels, two types of responses that people had. They were either amazed with him or they were angered with him. And you could have one of those two responses here. Some of you could be angered at Jesus because he is making the judgment saying, you can't have that for eternal life. And that could anger you. How dare you? But some of you could be amazed with what Jesus has done, but you're not amazed with Jesus. You're not enthralled with him, that he is all majesty, all glorious and wondrous, majestic in himself. He is God the Son to come to save. How do you perceive Christ? Jesus is the one that sets us free to worship God. The temple couldn't set them free. The rituals of the temple couldn't set them free. Jesus is coming in saying, I set you free to worship God. Will we trust him? Will we want him? Now, Mark moves and he gives us a little bit more of the lesson of this fig tree. 
going back. And let's just look at verse 20. I'm going to read through to uh, through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, what I've done so far up to this point is to show how Jesus sets us free to worship God. Jesus is the one who empowers us to worship God. The worship of God is the point of life. It's a salvation that we need. But I haven't shown you what living independence on God looks like. And that's what I think is the lesson we see from this withered fig tree. What does it look like to live independence on God? Jesus shows us blessings that flow from being set free to worship him. What does God give us when we look to Christ? And what we see is true faith. In some ways, I I, I think to myself, is that really part of the application of the fig tree? Because it looks like all the evidence points to judgment being the application of the fig tree. And judgment is certainly a part of it. And it was right. David brought it out with the kids. Judgment. God is going to judge the world. We need to recognize there is a judgment to come. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. We don't think about that enough, I don't think. But Jesus shows us that while he is the judge, he's also the rescuer. So the right response that a human being should have is, I need to find my rescue. And that's amazing because that's not, that's not our natural tendency or inclination when we know we're, we're judged or we're guilty of something. Um, for example, Adam and Eve, they sin, they sow leaves to hide, right? Because they're afraid of being judged. If there was somebody who was a thief, they don't run to the police station and say, hey, I'm here. They run from the one who's going to punish them. Well, God is the one who punishes, and yet Jesus also says God is the one who saves. So the right response is not to run from God. The right response is to run to God. So Jesus says, have faith. Have faith. And if you remember, over the last couple of weeks that I've preached in Romans, I've, I've emphasized this. Faith is a relational term. Faith is a belief of the facts of Jesus, who he is, and a dependence on him. It's a relational term. I need you. And so I rest in you. I look to you. I hope in you. Jesus is saying that part of the triumph or part of his triumph is that he sets people free to worship God. And it's true worship because it's done in faith. It's a worship that's done in absolute dependence on God. This is the triumphant king, and only the triumphant king can give this. But then Jesus moves on to discuss what this faith looks like. It's a faith that overpowers mountains. The sentence here can seem tricky at face value. Some commentators will say that Jesus has now all of a sudden 
change the subject and he's teaching on faith now. But I don't think Jesus has changed the subject. We still have um, the fig tree relating to the triumphal entry and the worship piece. What Jesus is saying here helps to illustrate all of this. But what we've seen so far is that Jesus has gone from Beth, uh, Jerusalem to Bethany, to Jerusalem, to Bethany, and now is heading back to Jerusalem. And as they're walking by the fig tree, they're looking towards Jerusalem. And we know that God's judgment is on even Israel. What about that temple? You know, it's, when we understand the context of my house should be called a house of prayer and go to Isaiah 56 and it says that Gentiles are going to worship on the mountain. It should grab our attention that Jesus says, you will say to this mountain. That's specific. That's not just, you will say to a mountain or you will say to the mountains over there. He's saying this mountain They're walking back towards Jerusalem. And I believe that the mountain that he is referring to is the mountain that the temple is on. You will say to this mountain, be moved. Because here's the problem. In that temple, people aren't worshiping God. God's will isn't being done on that mountain. And so Jesus is speaking to them and he is saying to his disciples, if you have faith... In me, the ritualistic system of approach to God will be abolished. The gospel message of Jesus' triumph reaches into people's hearts and changes them to see that it's not just about forms, it's about God. And that he has set us free to know God. That's the faith that moves mountains. It's that mountain, this mountain that the temple is on. Look, study it for yourself. Isaiah 56, look at this approach that Jesus takes as he's walking back. And I think that that actually leads us to the next point, that the triumphant King Jesus gives us prayer flowing from true faith. What happens when people turn to God? There's true faith and there's true prayer. Prayer wasn't happening in the temple. That means worship wasn't happening in the temple. But now Jesus brings up himself as the rescuer and he says, I will give the Gentiles the freedom to pray and they will pray and I will hear them. God will hear them. Now, some people will take the line here out of the context of the story and they'll say, oh, what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to give you whatever you want. I don't have this thing, so I'm going to ask him for this thing and he better give me exactly what I asked him for. Otherwise, he's a liar. But Jesus has already dressed what true prayers are. Jesus is already confronting, has already been confronting the selfishness of the religious leaders. Clearly, he wouldn't be saying if you pray to get more money that you're going to get it. No matter where you fall on the spectrum in your uh, beliefs about prayer and answer to prayer and and even what we've termed uh, prosperity gospel, every person, I think, I think, puts limits on this verse. Meaning, they, they recognize there is a context. I can't pray for a trillion dollars. I'm not, I'm not going to get it. I can pray for it. I'm not, I'm not going to get it. So what is Jesus saying here then? If there, there is a qualification, 
And the context qualifies this. The insurmountable challenge, the impossibility, the thing that angers Jesus the most is that people aren't adoring and praising and seeking after God. Jesus says to them, a faith that moves that mountain, this mountain. And so I believe that when Jesus is talking here, he's talking about the impossible of Gentiles and the world coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You ask, you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his vineyard. Why? Because he will send out laborers. You pray that souls will be saved. Why? Because souls will be saved. God has a design and it will only happen through Jesus Christ, the Lord and the King. And he will send his spirit to open blind eyes and unlock deaf ears and people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for the salvation of souls. That, that is an impossibility apart from God's mercy and grace. But God has given mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. He's the triumphant king. Jesus is the overcomer. And someday he will return again for people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. People will be rescued. By the way, this this affirms even what Jesus said at another point when he said, greater things than these are going to happen. And the greater things was that more nations came to trust in Jesus, more people across the globe today who believe on Christ than did in the first century. This is what the king gives. And then finally, Jesus puts in this teaching on forgiveness. And I put it, forgiveness because of God's forgiveness. The people in the temple didn't, wouldn't confess that they needed forgiveness. They wouldn't see the depth of their their need because they didn't see the depth of their sin. And so they weren't a kind people. They weren't a generous people. They weren't a caring people. They were acting unjustly. But Jesus says because of him, we could actually have forgiving spirits towards people. We could actually love them. We could actually care for them. If we really understand the forgiveness that God has given to us, can we really hold on to bitterness forever? Jesus says you you can't if you really know the forgiveness of God. Well, 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 Pastor Jim, you don't know what that person did. Maybe you need to think deeply about how God defines and describes your sins. And you need to ponder deeply how your sins and the punishment of your sins were placed on Jesus. We can't treat tritely the cross. that Jesus paid that. You know, just even recently, I had a conversation with one of my children about the crucifixion of Jesus, going into a little bit more detail on the crucifixion and what it entailed. And as we were talking through, the child left and then the next day told me that after this conversation, they, they went to a certain place and just cried for a little while. And then said, they prayed and said, thank you for loving me. 
when we ponder the sacrifice of Christ, it should affect us. Thank you for loving me that much. And God, may I love others around me that much through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me share his love with other people so that they can worship God too, so that they can pray, so that they can know the gospel of the Savior. That's really true. Jesus came in triumphing, but he gives something greater than freedom from Roman oppression. He gives us God. He gives us eternal glory with him. All the rituals is just false advertising. But Jesus isn't. He's not false advertising. He gives us all our hearts could ever yearn for. Jesus' mission is greater, broader, stronger than the Israelites admitted. And I do hope that you see it too. And I hope that you see that you're called to be a part of that mission. To go and tell the world. To hear because people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will hear. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue will confess. And someday, Jesus won't be riding on that donkey. Jesus will be riding on a white horse. And in that day, there will be people, Revelation tells us, people who rejected Jesus who want to fight him. They will lose. But all who trusted Jesus from the whole world throughout all the ages, will be on white horses as well behind him. And we will come to our home, our eternal home. No more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, eternal worship of God, what we were created for, living in dependence in him always. So Jesus died. He rose again. He reigns. And may our prayer be, may our prayer be, Jesus, by faith, cast the mountain of false religion into the sea. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us truth. You've given us Jesus. And you have given us a privilege pray and a privilege to see people come to faith in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we don't carry or cling to the, the values of this world system, that we would worship you above all and that we would love you and love others as you call us to but it's only by the grace that you give to us in Christ and it's all by that grace that we have confidence that not only you can but that you will do that in your children so strengthen us Lord strengthen us in loving you strengthen us in encouraging our souls to be amazed with the height the breadth and the depth of your love for us and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So hear these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.